you know, before we start, I think maybe we could go a little bit and both of you could tell us about your companies, just a, a quick brief of what you do and, and what your value proposition. Uh, LD, do you want to start off with that? Yeah, sure thing. So LD here, I'm one of the founders of Cherry. Um, this is, um, as Franco said, is our fifth company of the founding team. We started the first one back in the 90s and sold that to CompuBite and sold the last one to Oppenheimer a few years ago um, after building a private equity trading platform. So collecting lots of real estate data from public, private, internal sources and helping real large investors make better investment decisions. And that was really the genesis for starting Cherry, which is how do we help really large investors, banks, insurance companies make better investment decisions in real estate? And we you know, we can look at a lot of other markets around us, but this is really the largest asset class in the world by far. There's an abundance of data. And at the same time, we really haven't seen the transition of the market from a kind of people operation to a data-driven and automated environment. And that's what we're here to help. We're trying to help some of those large folks um, build the infrastructure to be able to um, leverage some of those capabilities going forward in the future and, and growing really fast. Mm-hmm. We're just about 50 people now. And um, as a lot of our clients are probably on the phone right now, some of the largest companies in the world. And, and the best, obviously, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Guy, how about you? Tell us a little, about, a little bit about Skyline AI. Sure. So uh, first, thanks again for, for having me today. Uh, and for, thanks for everyone who, who joined remotely uh, to listen to what we have to say about uh, data and uh, real estate. Um, <clears throat> my name is Guy Zipori. I'm the co-founder uh, and CEO of Scanlon AI. We are a group of four technology entrepreneurs. We've been working together for many years, since 2007. Uh, we had three startup companies together in, in different spaces, uh, but they were all around uh, or they were all utilized uh, big data, AI, um, in different industries. We had something in healthcare and cybersecurity that was acquired by ABG Technologies in 2011. Um, we, uh, and the recent company was Streamroll in the video optimization space uh, that was acquired in 2016. Uh, we started Skyline AI in 2017. Um, we're a real estate investment manager um, for com- AI real estate investment manager for commercial real estate. Uh, we partner with top real estate players, and together we form investment vehicles that are using, utilizing our technology um, to, find, to build strategies, to find interesting markets, to find investment opportunities within those markets. Um, and um, maybe later we'll probably speak more about how we do that, but this is uh, in a nutshell. Great. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. And you know, we've, uh, like I said, we've been talking quite a bit. We've had a bunch of articles, podcasts uh, about this topic. So if any of our listeners um, would like, they can obviously jump on to propmoto.com and look at our meta trend section and, and bring some of that up to speed. But uh, particularly for this call, I, I wanted to talk about the, uh, I'm really interested in the, uh, the connection between the data landscape and um, you know how, how these technologies are being built. Uh, and as someone that is, you know, both of you are people that are, are, are building technologies that uh, are hoping to bring in a lot of new data, crunch data in new ways. You know, and I, I kind of like to learn from both of you. You know, when when you came into this space, you know, how, how did you see? Uh, you know, what was the first thing that uh, that struck you about the data landscape, and and how did that affect how you ended up creating your business model? Uh, maybe Guy, if you could uh, jump in, start with that one. Sure. So I'll start with the second uh, question. I, I'm hearing a lot that they, data is the new oil, um, but I think, I think the main difference is that we all know how we use oil, 
how we use data uh, is a key here. So um, how, how we just apply to deals? What are the decisions you make ba based on the data or, what, or the insight that you generated? How it becomes a competitive advantage when everyone has access to the same data? Um, this is one of the reasons why our team is composed of uh, three, three different disciplines. So we have the, uh, the people who are responsible for collecting the data and building the huge data set. Um, this team is uh, composed mainly of uh, ex-Israel Defense Forces Intelligence Unit, and we treat this as an intelligence challenge. Um, and then we have our AI team that is responsible for extracting those insights and generating the predictions uh, that we later use in the real estate investment process. And we have our own real estate team. So, and I think it's very important to, co to um, combine the, uh, the industry expertise uh, together with, uh, with the engineering teams that are responsible for creating this product. Um, so our business model was created on the back of big data, um, but, but AI and data science experts um, um, is, is, an important, uh, <clears throat> is an important piece of that and helps us getting, the, uh, getting an advantage from, from the data for, for the real estate investment. Um, and um, your, I'm trying to remember what was your other question. <laughs> Well, just about how it, you know, how, how the data, you know, how you look to uh, structure your company in order to, you know, be able to both pull in all the useful data or maybe have to go out and find stuff that you thought wasn't um, necessarily uh, available. Yeah. Um, so, so this is interesting. I think we, we were surprised by the, uh, both the amount of data and the transparency of data that exists in this uh, field. This is, this was one uh, good surprise for us. When we entered, we didn't know how much data we'll be able to put our hands on, uh, free and paid, by the way. Um, so this was uh, one good surprise for us. Um, and today we're also very happy to see that we can learn a lot from, uh, to learn a lot about real estate trends uh, and values from untraditional data, data sources. Mm -hmm. um, we look at many different data sources, like uh, from service calls and health food stores and trees and asset names and uh, know, taxi and flights uh, statistics. So all these kind of data sources uh, gives us different uh, views and different insights, which was also uh, a good uh, surprise for us. Very interesting. Yeah, and we'll definitely dig into that later. But yeah, I know we I wrote an article a few months back about uh, how you guys have used uh, asset names, uh, building names, to kind of understand how the name infect, uh, affects the the price. So that was a, a really fun. Uh, I want to thank you for that. That was a really yeah. interesting kind of thought. Um, okay, LD, let's hear it. Uh, how did the uh, you know when you came into this and you looked at the data landscape, you know, how did that affect how you built uh, Cherry? Yeah, sure. We had a bit of a privilege of seeing how bad it was before we actually started the company. So. We were still back at Oppenheimer and we were trying to contemplate if this is something that we could do, right? Build the infrastructure to kind of create those next generation of two sigmas of the world, the programmatic traders of, of real estate. And we had all these different data providers that are now kind of ubiquitous data providers come and talk to us and show how they do their processes um, and try and get a sense of what that data looks like. And very quickly we understood that the data that we can look at and, and echoing what, what Guy said earlier, 
there's an abundance of data, more data than almost any other asset class, or at least that I can think of. So it's not a lack of data. Um, but the challenge is that you really don't know anything about the data you get, right? So if you buy data from any of the large vendors, they don't really tell you at the field level, where did this data come from? When did we collect it? When was the last time we collected it? What process did it go through in that, along the way? And if you're just trying to, you know, kind of get some cursory information about something, that might be fine. But if you're trying to build a real model around that, you know, any data science model, that, you know, that kind of gets you really creeped out. And that challenge really is across the board, even across the public data. And, and as Guy said, certain areas have ridiculous amounts of public data. New York's a great example. We, by the way, we ingest 300,000 data sets in the public domain, more than 200 billion data points. There's a lot of data. The challenge is even from the same public source, from the same official public source, you might get more than one value, right? So New York has three different data sets about the square foot of a lot. So you can get that information from the Department of Finance, and that's what you pay your taxes on. You can get it from the Department of Buildings, which is that, you know, that's what you get your zoning rights on. And you can actually measure the property, which is a completely different value, right? So even if you're trying to get official data, even there you have some contradictory problems. So the challenge really is less about where is the data and how do we get the data. The challenge is, how do we put this data into, into a, a meaningful format that can then go downstream, as Guy mentioned, to oil that can be refined, right? In, in my mind, I think of it as more like tar sands, right? We're still like, we're, we're, the oil's in there in the sand. I got to pull the oil out of the sand, put it into an, a, a refined oil, into an oil standpoint so we can now go and refine it to something that's valuable, right? Um, we really focus on that early part. And had there been a lot of vendors out there that offered really, really quality data, and we were really confident that quality data in the lineage, we probably would have skipped that early step and just jumped into kind of really doing some, some more application layer stuff on top of it. But the minute we saw that problem, we realized that if we have that problem, everyone has that problem as well, and everyone will have that problem in the future as they transition from kind of manual to data-driven operations, right? Because presumably Skyline's going to do very well. Everyone looking at Skyline from the side is going to say, wait a minute, I want to do Skyline as well. A lot of them will partner with Skyline, and a lot of them won't because it's just a really big market, or maybe you get all of them and you win. But <laughs> assuming you don't get all of them, a lot of companies are going to build company things on their own, right? And as they start building things on their own, and, and even if you step outside of real estate, the banking and insurance, a lot of other industries they work in that are kind of outside that, that core, the same need exists. And that's really what we focus on, right? How do we help these companies from an end-to-end -end solution, collect that data programmatically, resolve that data programmatically to things that people can understand a lot, the building unit, right, the knowledge graph, and then export that into a, a format that they can consume, whether it's in a data science pro product or in a, a front-end UI product or in a data store product that they will then integrate the rest of their operation. And that's how we structure the company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you bring up a good point. Obviously, you know, all of the real estate companies out there are kind of weighing uh, you know, whether they partner, build, or buy a lot of these technologies, uh, it, you know, it looks like you guys are both kind of trying to set up, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, to be the, the middleman um, for some of this, this big data coming in or, or, you know, be able to kind of curate it and, uh, and use it. You know, do you see uh, a lot of the real estate teams doing this as well, right? Like doing what you guys are doing, hiring data scientists, uh, going through the data themselves, or do you think, uh, it's probably, you know, even the biggest shops might not be able to do it. This is LD here. I mean, at least from the big folks, clearly there's, there's that interest, right? If you take the top five private equity asset managers, REIT, the big hedge funds, the big banks, insurance companies, yeah, there's, there's definitely a giant push and you're doing that. But go a step below the number one player 
and they really don't have that option, right? And for them, they can either go partner with, with Guy and actually get real alpha, or they're not going to do anything and they're just going to lose money. So, yeah, they can mm-hmm. they not do anything, but they really don't have much of a choice because folks like Guy are going to come and eat their lunch eventually, right? Guy, what do you think about that? Do you think some of those, uh, those big shops are eventually going to use you, or do you think they'll uh, just be able to kind of do it all in-house? Yeah, so we see a lot of, uh, maybe not a lot, we see some large private equity, as uh, LD mentioned, that are working internally trying to build um, something similar that will support their efforts. And I think there are some advantages of doing it in-house if you can, if you can afford that, but more is that if you can understand uh, what you're doing and why you're doing that. And, and, if, you can, and if you can really bring in uh, the best talent, because this is one of the, the uh, biggest challenges for when developing tech, whether you're a startup company or a large corporate. Uh, Bill, when we talked about this earlier before the call about culture and about um, uh, communication and things like that, so I think um, throwing... Uh, big money on a problem uh, is a good start, but it's not always the best way to, um, to find a solution to a problem that you're dealing with. So we see large corporates doing that. Uh, I'm sure some will be more successful than others. Uh, we try to, to provide alternatives for large private equities that, um, that decide to, <clears throat> to partner with someone like ours um, in order to get this advantage uh, quickly um, from people that um, this is their expertise. And this is where, I mean, I think the combination is powerful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, I would like for both of you right now to maybe give me an idea of, uh, of where you get your data. You know, that's something that I think, you know, we talk a lot broadly about how important it is to bring in uh, outside data um, but, you know, I would like uh, both of you to kind of give me hopefully some sort of a detailed list about exactly where you get it and, you know, maybe where you don't and, and why. So this is your chance to maybe plug a data partner or just kind of give us an idea of, of where, you're, where you're pulling everything in from. Uh, LD, why don't you start that off? Sure. So we really deal with three categories of data, public data, paid data, internal data. Um, so public data, we go directly to the source. So... There are roughly 3,400 counties in the U.S., um, and they all provide data around um, tax, assessor, deeds, mortgages, things like that, recording and assessor data. And if it's made available through API or through direct data feed, we pull from that. Um, If it's not available through one of those, it's available through some local website that needs to be scraped, and we build scraping operations around that. And if it's not available through either of those, maybe... Some of these places are really small county sheriff offices where you just got to go put boots on the ground and photocopy some documents. We don't do that, but that will either buy from that local person on the ground or from some aggregator that's collecting some of those. Um, so that covers all the public data. As I mentioned, we cover um, just under 300,000 data sets, which is about 200 billion data points on 177 million properties in the U.S. Paid data, we buy a lot of data, obviously, um, that gets used within our, within our knowledge graph, but most of our paid data comes from our clients. So when we deploy a platform for a client, it's a platform called Core Connect, we'll give all the public data as part of that process. But all the paid data will typically be connected by them. So all of your 
debt and mortgage company providers, your your lease providers, your your residential for you know listing providers, all those different platforms. So we'll connect all of those for them. And finally, operational data, right? So most companies that we work with have a lot of internal data. Their CRM systems, Yardi, MRI, VTS, right? All these disparate different systems they have in, within their house, which is which are basically data plants, small data plants. So those data plants as well. So our job is to, while we do provide all the public data and some of the paid data, depending on what they're looking for, the vast majority of the, of the data that goes into the platform for our clients is their data, in fact, whether it's data that they're buying or data um, that they have in-house that we're connecting. And that's really the, the value we provide for them is allowing them to use all of those different data domains without having to rely on just the data that we have. Great. That was a great, uh, a great overview. Uh, Guy, do you have anything to add? What, what, what do you guys use? How, how do you pull yeah. it all in together? Yeah. Yeah. So in a lot of senses, we, we look at similar data sources that uh, Cherry are looking at, um, but with some, with some differences. Uh, I, I think that and when, maybe one thing that's important to mention that will help explaining that and clarifying that is the fact that we are not selling data. We're not an analytics provider. We're not data provider. So usually when it's possible to buy data um, and, um, and the price makes sense, we will prefer doing that. So for example, uh, LD mentioned the, uh, the assessor. So if, if there's a good data provider or analytics provider that have, uh, that this is his effort um, and he has a great data set of the data that he collected from all the assessors uh, or the counties, then we would prefer buying that. Um, but the way we categorize our data sources, so we look at, um, uh, so first there's the paid uh, data and the, the free data, um, but we categorize, like we add two dimensions that we're looking at. So we look at structured data and unstructured data. So sometimes we'll try to put our hands on data that it's more difficult to obtain uh, but we think we can extract interesting insights from. So it can be um, you know, satellite images that you can analyze and understand the number of trees or the color of the rooftop, maybe something you can't find elsewhere and you think might affect real estate value. Um, but a lot of efforts are going into what we call new age data. So they are the potential suspects that everyone are trying to, to acquire in some way, like information about debt and transactions and asset, a number of units and things like that. Um, we try to find uh, things that maybe others uh, doesn't look at that, or don't put a lot of effort in, in finding, and we can extract interesting insights from. So I mentioned some of them earlier, uh, but everything from geolocation data and uh, clickstream data where people are browsing. So our data pipeline, the way we structure it, is that usually we'll try to come up with an hypothesis of what we can potentially get from this data. Uh, what, what, of our, what is the predictive model that we have that can be improved by infusing this state, new data set? And then we'll usually start with the sample data just to see how it impacts the model before we go and try to, uh, to obtain this data. Um, that's really interesting. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I think about a lot is how, you know, we, we try to kind of understand the value of a building uh, looking backwards, right? Here's what everything has sold for. Here's what the leases uh, have, have been for. But, 
you know, really like anything, a building or a space is, is more uh, about the market for it. You know, talk to me a little bit uh, about the, the listing side of it. I mean, um, do either of your companies pull in listing data or, or um, expect to um, in the future? And, and if so, how, how do you do that? How do you get that kind of listing data and, and from who? Uh, Guy, you want to start with that one? Yeah, sure. So, um, so first, like uh, like any other investment manager, we uh, we maintain relationships with owners and and uh, brokers um, to get deals that are on market. Uh, so we are not different in on that regard. Um, but we just and we also so we have access to some of the brokers' platforms and uh, the listing platforms, and we get data from from that. And this is how, how we indicate that an asset is currently on the market. Uh, but I think maybe more, more interesting is, is the fact that uh, we're very proud of uh, one of our predictive models that we call soon to sale. So what we're trying to do is to look at assets that are not necessarily on the market and predict when this asset will go on market. So when we look, so when we use the system for deal sourcing, uh, we can query the system and say, for example, give me all the assets in a certain area that's worth today between X and Y um, and will go on market within the next uh, six months. Uh, and this helps us find opportunities that are not necessarily currently on market. Well, that's, that's interesting. And so what, what have you seen so far? I and mean, what are some of the, the factors that might be leading indicators of when a building's going to come on the market or, you know, a space? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are examples of things that are easier to explain. So if you see an owner that is selling all of its portfolio, you can arguably uh, predict that maybe he will put on sale other assets. If it's owned by a fund with a certain sunset, if you see um, uh, things like uh, the maturity of, um, of loans, things like that, that are more simple to understand, but one of the beauties in, uh, in machine learning is that you don't necessarily define, it's not a rule-based algorithm. So you're not specifically uh, looking for uh, something in the data in order to, to generate a prediction. You infuse all the data and then um, the, uh, the algorithm learns from the examples and finding the patterns. So when, when I look at the system, and the system indicates that this asset will go on market within three months, I don't know why the, the system mm-hmm. seems like that. But what I do know is what phone number I need to make in order to, to see if the system is correct. Um, and uh, yeah, so this is, uh, this is how it works. Very interesting distinction, yeah. And LD, why don't you weigh in on this? I mean, what, what's your thoughts on listing data? Do you guys use it? Who do you get it from? And, and how should it be part of the equation? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's a key part of the equation. Um, first of all, we do power a few MLSs, right? So um, we power Stratus Data Systems and Real Estate Board of New York and Hudson Gateway and Long Island. We, we power a lot of systems out there that are in the residential listing platform. Um, so we know the space very well. Um, that's in the residential, right? When we say listings, you really need to think about the full listing platform, right? So there's residential listing, which would come from the MLSs. That's one part of it. Those are the exclusive listings. 
but the other part of it is the non-exclusive listings as they come from the brokerage, as they come from the, the asset managers are putting listings on the market in a non-exclusive manner, or maybe in a non-public manner. So that's another fee that we collect. And finally, all the open listings, right? Things that are on Craigslist or something like that, um, which you have to kind of collect as well. So that gives us the full image of, of residential listing data, and we have access to all that, obviously. Um, when it comes to commercial listings, the situation is a little more complex, right? So, you know, the the giant is obviously CoStar, right? To people mm-hmm. love to shit on CoStar, but if you take a step back and you actually look at what they've built over the years and why they have such a big valuation, it's really because they have the most complete and accurate data set out there for commercial listing data. Now, you could argue that it's not that great, and you can argue that it has all its flaws, and you'd probably be right. But until you find something better for that information, you really have to work with that. Um, we don't buy CoStar data, nor do we process CoStar data, but our clients do all the time. We sit behind our clients' firewalls and behind our clients' environments or within their system, and to the extent that our clients have the permission to use certain data sets like that, which is not always the case, um, we can work with some of that data for that client. Um, another few vendors in that space, you know, Comstock's a big one that I like a lot. Um, I think Mandel's an awesome guy, Michael, and I really hope that they continue to grow as they are and expand out of, you know, the markets they're in to be able to give a real competition because I think the quality of data in the markets that they're in right now that they do well is much higher, um, and I'd like to see that across the board. That covers kind of the residential and commercial listing. Um, we don't cover retail listings or industrial in Army right now. Interesting. And, you know, it kind of sounds like you are, you know, like you say, you sit, you sit behind the data that your clients bring in, but, you know, what role do you have in, in consulting them about, um, about how to bring data in? I mean, have you ever talked to some of your clients that, you know, maybe you should consider bringing in uh, CoStar data or CompStack data to, to help out because we don't have the full picture here? Yeah, definitely. And, and, and imagine what it's like to be in a position where you're recommending CoStar data when nobody wants to hear that, right? <laughs> Um, but we're in that constant position because you want to solve a problem that requires commercial leasing data, and they're really the only, the only option that I think is, is of, of quality across the U.S., right? If it's just New York or some of those places, I think Comstock's much better. Um, so, yeah, we're in that weird place, but we do that all the time. I mean, think about payment data from ADP around paychecks or um, Bloomberg versus TREP on debt. I'll choose TREP um, or things like that. So we get these questions mm-hmm. all the time, and depending on what you're trying to solve, we can tell you pretty quickly which will give you a higher R squared on that model and what will be more predictive at the end of the day of what you're trying to do, to the extent that we have that knowledge, right? If we don't know, we can find out together, right? If it's a new data set that we've never tested. Um, but this comes up a lot. People just recently, I don't want to drop the name, but someone gave us a new debt um, data set that they asked us to test versus Bloomberg and, and Trek because they wanted to compare the three together and see which one um, has more coverage and, and which one is more predictive in the model. And we're pretty quickly able to give them the answer. It's probably not advisable to buy that data set compared to what they already have. And this is great. This is leading right into another thing that I really wanted to talk about. You know, we've uh, put out a lot of information about, you know, how to understand data, how to understand APIs. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear from both of you, you know, h- how do you test test the data? Because, you know, when it's coming in, I think it's, especially if it's, you know, coming from reputable places, like even county assessors, you assume that it's right. But I'm sure in data science, that's a big no-no, right? Everything uh, needs to kind of be confirmed. So, you know, what, what are the processes you take? And, and maybe how can the larger real estate community uh, kind of use this information to, to get, wrap their head around how, how to really look at data? Um, you know, there's the freshness, there's the accuracy. Uh, uh, Guy, tell me a little bit about how you guys look at, uh, look at data and give me some, some examples. Sure, sure. 
So first, this is really interesting, and uh, it's a real challenge. Um, how do you know what data you can trust? What is the ground truth of data? Um, there is a saying that the predictions can only be as good as the data. So as long and whatever, whether it's, if your predictions are produced by an algorithm or by people, right, the, having the inaccurate data is, is very important. And I think one of the things, and it also has something to do with your previous question to LD, and I totally agree with him about the, <clears throat> about the data sources and, and the partners that sometimes ask about what data sources they should uh, use. And I think one of the approaches that we see a lot in, in, in all sizes of real estate investors, so we hear a lot of people say, okay, we use, uh, let's say, RCA for transactional data, and we use, uh, uh, I don't know, axiometrics for rent data. But when, but when you go into the, like when you dive deep and when you combine all the data sources together and trying to, or starting to deal with uh, cleaning the data and merging the data, you see interesting stuff like who is getting data from whom. Um, and the, uh, the mechanism of getting or building the ground truth of data um, is, is very important. Um, I know that some people are doing, uh, like when they test new data sources, they go to assets that they are familiar with. If it's a large investment manager, it's easier to do. Uh, sometimes they call owners to ask friendly owners just to validate uh, specific points until they decide that this is a trustable uh, data source. I think it's very important to um, um, not to pick different data source for different um, metric, uh, but look at for every metric, for every asset to look at the different uh, data sources and the different numbers um, and uh, how you how you decide what data to trust. So in our world, it's uh, happened uh, automatically by by the models. And by looking at the examples, by creating the, uh, and it's different in different predictive models. So if you have, um, I mean, by training, uh, when you train the models and you uh, backtest and cross-validate, uh, you start to learn, um, or the system starts to learn what data, what metric you can trust for each and every uh, asset. Uh, so again, I'm not sure if, uh, if this is a practical um, solution for the uh for the audience but this is one of the advantages of uh of the uh of machine learning in this case mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, ld would jump in here how how do you uh look at look at data and understand it and, and what advice would you have for people using large amounts of, of real estate data right now yeah definitely first i'd echo a guy who said that really predictions are only as good as the data right so um, I think Zillow has a million-dollar competition that's been out there forever. If you can improve their model by some small margin, to the best of my knowledge, they've mm-hmm. never paid anyone anything. Um, when it comes, I mean, we're mostly using data science. I mean, here at Cherry, I'm saying when I say we, we're mostly using machine learning models that are, I would say, off the shelf, but that, that they're not inventing new models, right? We're taking models that have been tried and tested in other environments, and we're applying them to a new discipline, which has all its all its complexities, and it's not as simple as what I'm making it, but obviously it has a lot of a lot of complexities. But it's not inventing new models, right? And then presumably someone could come down the road and 
do at least as good as we did, right? They might not have as much time of training the model, right? There's a huge advantage to time. They might not have access to the same data sets. It's another you know, advantage that you might have, but presumably that, that can be replicated. Quality of data is, is something that's very hard to replicate. Um, and that's why we spend a lot of time on that. And to Guy's point, it, it, it's not a magic solution here. Most of our, you know, most of our clients would typically, when they're looking, when they're assessing different data sets, as I mentioned, will typically kind of pull up a few assets that they know or have internally and kind of spot check. But that might work, you know, to maybe sell to a client on a sales call. But it's not, it's not something that would make me feel comfortable in a programmatic way from a, from a data science standpoint. Um, so you can put a lot of tests in place. So first of all, I have a really, really big bank um, of properties that we know uh, that we know have you know we have really good data on them from definitive sources that we have you know, almost 100% surety, and that gives us some benchmarks for certain features around that. Also, kind of as a secondary question, which is, are we testing a feature that's even objective, right? So, the number of bedrooms in a in a property is not necessarily an objective metric, right? It could be two, it could be one, right? You might ask, what is the potential number of legal bedrooms that can exist in this apartment? The different question: How many rooms are there right now? Um, condition of a unit, is it renovated or not? These are very subjective terms. So a lot of the data that we deal with is not necessarily objective in the sense that it can be um, tested for, for accuracy. But to the extent that it is a subjective or an objective term that can be tested, um, one of the things that we're testing, first of all, is it hasn't changed, right? So if we're ingesting data sets every few seconds, a lot of big data sets and processing deltas between those data sets, can I see the data set hasn't materially changed since yesterday? Maybe the city dropped half their records for whatever stupid reason. By the way, this is a real example. Maybe the city dropped half their records and you didn't even notice, and now you're processing a new data set. And you didn't even notice that half the data is missing for some stupid reason, right? So mm -hmm. high latency, low fidelity of that data coming in is a big one. And then a lot of tests around just the actual quality of, that, of those little micro data points against test sets that we have high validity into. And for the folks on the call, I would say, you know, you know your properties better than anyone else. You know, if, if the data provider or the, or the whatever application on top of that data provider doesn't know your property, the likelihood of them knowing someone else is, is just as high, right? So um, always test on your own. That's always the new property, you know, always the way to test it, and always test in multiple markets, big and small, large MSAs, you know, city MSAs, non-city, rural areas, agriculture. Try and test across the board to get a good feeling of, of where the data sets are good and bad. And, and I will say this, the fact that it might not do well in a certain area doesn't mean that the whole data set's a wash, right? So let's say you're using, you know, the number one data set for a certain, let's say TREP for data, for debt. I think it's a great data set. And now you, there's this other data set coming in, which really only, only adds a little bit. Maybe that little bit's meaningful. So maybe you might say, well, it's not as good as the other one, but even though it's not as good as the other one, together it's still contributing to my R-squared model. I want it anyway. So... The fact that something's not as good as you want doesn't mean it's a complete wash. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Yeah, don't uh, throw the the baby out with the bathwater. There's uh, that little bit might be the difference. Um, you know, before we go, I, I know we're a little over our time, but I I really wanted to get something that is you know very concrete. And if both of you could kind of give me an example of if if you were in real estate and you were looking at a deal, be it. Um, you know, an acquisition, um, some sort of lease, you know, what would you think would be uh, some sort of sophisticated data-driven metric that you would like to have, you know, whether it's available now or not, that you, that you think, you know, the, the real estate industry should, should really have in front of them before making any, any big decisions? Guy, you, you got one for me? You mean um, 
You mean a data source or an insight that you can maybe generate mm, from? Yeah, more so a, a piece of understanding, right? A, a, a piece of data-driven uh, insight to where you could say, okay, well, we know X, Y, Z uh, because of our data, and that would make us, uh, you know, more confident on on this decision. Yeah. So I think um, maybe one example to that um, is something we. Um, something we did with uh, comparable assets. I think everyone, when, when, you under, when you underwrite a deal, you look at the comparable assets. Um, and there's, there's an approach of how you choose a comparable assets, right? You take assets in a certain area uh, with similar characteristics. So one of the things that we try to do is say, what if these are not really the comparable assets? What if there are, this is just the comparable assets we look at because this is how we do this for uh, hundreds of years. Um, and, and so we try to look at things like um, where people are, uh, like using uh, geolocation data to see where people, what asset they were visited or what asset they searched online. Um, and when you do something like that and you look at different group of comparable assets, you get a different picture. So every time, every time, um, I mean, when we do our own uh, brainstorming sessions and trying to find, we're trying to find things that are different than how the real estate community is looking at for years. Trying to find something that that others, um, because of their uh, limitations or because of because they have tons of experience. Uh, they look at different uh, differently. So um, maybe this is uh, maybe this is one example, uh, uh, and I think this can be applied to uh, to other things that you do regularly. And you need to question yourself, given the fact that I have data and I have um, data science capabilities. If you have this in your organization, what can be done really differently? I hope great. that's helps. That's a, you, I, 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 no, that's I can a great, provide yeah. all, our, all our secret <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I know. I, I don't want you to give away everything. But, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think the, the idea of what a comp is, I think, should probably be a lot more nuanced than it is now. Um, you know, just looking for kind of assets in a, you know, a quarter-mile radius or however, uh, you know, most companies like to do it is, is pretty weak as far as, a, you know, from a data science perspective. So I think that's a great – uh, a great piece to to examine. Uh, LD, you had some time to think. You got any any good ones for me? I, I wish I could tell you I was thinking about something else except valuations, but honestly, that's that's kind of where my mind in, intuitively went as well. And um, one of the things that I would encourage the industry to think about is stop thinking about valuation as a number. And we're kind of addicted to these this these this AVM mentality. Your property is worth X. The DCF said Y. Um, the broker gave me a comp set of four properties that are obviously overpriced to be able to justify their price, right? Um, I would encourage the industry to stop thinking about a price and thinking about valuation as a continuum. At the lowest end of that continuum, you'll have the replacement cost, right? What would be their place to rebuild this property from scratch? And that's what the insurance is going to, or the underwriter will typically peg the value. We work a lot with insurance and underwriting and banks, so that's what they'll peg the value at, Right. And the broker will always be the highest value. So if you know, if it's on the market, you'll have that broker number. 
It may be you'll have, you know, the predictive value. That, not to say that it doesn't sell above market, but the vast majority of properties sell below the ask price by, by a huge margin, right, especially in the commercial world. So those are the two guardrails. Now, in between, you're going to have some kind of DCF, right, and your DCF is going to be driven hopefully not just by, you know, your internal data, but also by kind of market data around what other rental prices are and what other expenses are, tax being the biggest one, trying to figure out, is my, is my prediction the one, two, or three sigma event, right? Maybe I'm predicting something that's just impossible. And then the flip side is that, that comp world. And, and I encourage you to think about it the way, guy, the way Guy just mentioned, right? It's very easy for a broker to choose three assets from a sales standpoint and make you think that these are the right ones. And more credit to, to brokers are really good salespeople, and that's their business, right? Their job is to move assets, right? So they do the job really well. But from an asset manager side, you really should be questioning what these comps actually mean. And if they're derived by a human, not a human training model, if they're derived by a human, you should be very skeptical about what those, mean, what those numbers mean, as you already are, right? But think of that as a continuum and try and figure out how far off is my assumption um, from whatever I can predict. If it's, a, if it's out of a prediction range, if it's a sigma event, you should be really concerned. Yeah, yeah, and, I think that's a great point to make. And I can add, if, if you don't mind, I can add to the value piece, and I agree with Elliot that um, that um, when we start, one of our predictive models is the value prediction. So we're trying to predict how much the asset's worth and what will be the value in the next few years. But when we started to work on that, so it's not a, any, it's not a standard model. It's not DCF or anything else. Um, and then comes the question, what is the value? Is how much the asset's worth? How much it's worth to whom? Uh, and it's a different prediction if you're and trying when. to understand. And when, yeah. So it's a different question if you're trying to, to ask yourself how much the asset's worth, how much it's worth for you, uh, and what will be the transaction value? Like maybe the asset's worth X, but in the uh, market dynamics, people will pay more than that. So what are you trying to predict? You're trying to predict how much uh, you need to put on your offer in order to win this deal, or, uh, or you want to know how much the asset actually worth. So it's, uh, it's important to distinguish, um, and uh, I'm sure people are looking at those different metrics every, every day, um, but it's, that's important to distinguish. Yeah, and you know, that, I think that's a really great point to you know, I, I look at other industries and I think that uh, the commercial real estate industry in particular likes to say, well, this is the value of something, right? These are the leases. But, you know, if you look at the equity market, oftentimes the, the growth potential is m almost more of a factor of asset value than anything. And, you know, by that lens, I think commercial real estate is really not doing a great job of understanding these assets because, uh, again, we're looking, we're often looking backwards, you know, what are the rent rolls, how is it leased up? What's the uh, traditional vacancy? Uh, you know, I think the comparables is another point to make. You know, yeah, obviously you look at the earnings per share for, for the industry, but, you know, if someone looked at uh, MySpace and Facebook and kind of tried to compare the two together, you know, it, wouldn't, uh, it, it wouldn't make any sense in, in, that, in that respect, even though you could make a case that they're, uh, you know, uh, at least as a, a shell, the same thing. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think that those are both really great points is to uh, look at its value a little differently and uh, understand the, the different data points that can be brought in. And um, yeah, I, I hope to have both of you back uh, at some point to kind of 
uh, dive a little more into this, uh, how, how valuations can be uh, understood better using uh, different data sources and, and different methodologies and, uh, and models. 